Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Carrie Tomey, the longtime former chief investment officer at Wharf, or the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, which is a $3 billion pool that arose from monetizing technologies developed at the University of Wisconsin. She recently left to start a venture capital firm called NVNG, standing for Nothing Ventured, Nothing Gained. Our conversation covers Carrie's Wisconsin roots, her early experience at SWIB, for the State of Wisconsin Pension Fund, and investing at Wharf over the last two decades. We discuss Wharf's unique structure, technology transfer, 
its all-weather portfolio construction, separation of alpha and beta, and manager selection. We then turn to Kerry's new adventure, NVNG, a venture capital firm seeking to bring the benefits of entrepreneurial activities in Wisconsin to local firms and national venture capitalists. Please enjoy my conversation with Carrie Tomey. Carrie, thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So, look, I know you are Wisconsin through and through. So why don't we go all the way back into your background and initial foray into investing? Okay. Listening to a podcast you did with someone before I got on here, to just familiar my, myself, the individual talked about how they always knew what they wanted to do. And I would say I was the exact opposite. I had no idea. And my whole career, I would probably classify as an accident. <laughs> um, I grew up in a really small town. It was mostly a farming town. My parents, neither of them went to college. So I didn't have great idea of what where I ended up today. None of that was known to me. I, I had no idea about this world whatsoever. All I really knew, and I love when people have great stories about why they chose a college. I primarily chose mine because I wanted to move to a big city. And at the time, Madison seemed like a big city when you're coming from Freedom, Wisconsin. And even my selection of choosing business was because I kind of, by process of elimination, hadn't found anything else that spoke to me. And I ended up in the business program. And then when you take all of the first classes, the finance one spoke to me. So that's probably as good of an example of how I ended up where I was. I really fell in love with real estate, actually. I thought it was nice. My dad was a mason, so I kind of thought there was a nice thing to building things. And I think there is a building things about my career and what I've chosen to do went into real estate primarily, real estate finance. So that's where my two majors were in as an undergrad was real estate and finance and went to work at a bank and underwrote mortgages. And it was exceedingly boring and I just couldn't wait to get to get out of there. Uh, it might be for some people, but for me, it wasn't. And, and I'm old enough now when I had my first job, there were no computers like on everybody's desk. So you, you were doing it manually. Ultimately, ended up with a job in a commercial real estate firm. We were developing apartment complexes. At that point, somewhere along the line, I had decided I either was going to go back to law school or business school, got all the way through and accepted to law schools, deferred a year and ended up going back and getting my master's degree and was working full-time, then part-time while I did that. And after finishing that up, I was fortunate enough to experience, I don't know, I wouldn't call it fortunate at the time, but now it is. We had two downsizing. So I lived through a company that was the fastest growing company. And then we had the everybody go to a room and then half the people basically lost their jobs. And we did two of those. And I knew that at the end of the day, my job, we didn't need two analysts. And someone that I had worked with at this company had called me and they were over at the pension fund. And that's how I ended up at the pension fund and how I ended up in institutional investment management. Because if I go back to where I started... No idea about pensions, institutional investors. My parents basically lived paycheck to paycheck. We weren't investing in things. There weren't stocks. None of this world was anything I had known anything about. So what did you find when you first showed up at SWIB coming from your background and how you took your career from there? What I found when I got to SWIB was I had joined their private group. And at that time, they had their private group. It was the private debt that was quasi-public. I'm blanking on the, the term. They did a private loan program, long-term loans to Wisconsin companies, and they had the private equity program there as well. 
and they had one analyst and I was supposed to serve all three to four portfolio managers. Eventually, they all wanted their own analysts and I had to pick which one I wanted to go to, which portfolio. And I chose the private equity portfolio, the venture capital and the buyouts because it had most spoken to me and it was most similar to real estate. And maybe at the time I was still thinking that eventually I'd like to maybe transfer over to the real estate program at SWIB. It was working there and beginning to learn and understand that industry. I can smile now because I think those first meetings, every time I went to a meeting and I'd come from real estate and someone would talk about carried interest, I just was like, carried interest? What is that? You know, Because I was thinking of interest as an interest rate on the loan because my job had been to put the loans on the apartment complexes. And so like, what what kind of interest is carried interest? And so it makes me smile when I think about sort of how incredibly naive I was and how much I had to learn. Fell in love with the asset class and really loved doing that. And then I spent five years there. And it was because I loved what I was doing and people thought I did a good job that when they would go over to where I eventually moved to WARF, the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, and the director over there, Mark, would ask, who did they visit? And they would say nice things about me. And when he eventually needed to replace his associate director, he figured it was harder to teach someone private assets than the public piece of what they were doing. And that's where I made the transition then over to institutional total portfolio management. And at that point, I had learned enough. I mean, I was no expert, but I'd learned enough about a single asset class that the whole idea of going multi-asset class, and even though the assets were one third the size of what I had managed, it was really interesting to me. So I, I did make the move over there and then entered into the world that eventually led me to become a CIO. You spent nearly two decades at Wharf. It's hard to figure out exactly where to dive in, but why don't we, why don't we start with just sort of what Wharf is and kind of the purpose behind the money? Wharf is, I think it's become better known. When I first got there, I didn't really honestly know what it was when I started either. It was a pretty quiet organization and, and for decent reason. Wharf is known as the tech transfer office for the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And by technology transfer, they process and hold the patents on all of the inventions that come off campus. If they have the university, if the university funding has any federal funding, then you are required to give any invention disclosures to the university's designated tech transfer office. And in this case, it's Wharf. And the thing that's pretty unique about Wharf is Wharf was started in 1925, before there really ever even were tech transfer offices. The university didn't want to deal with intellectual property. So nine alumni had come together to create this foundation to hold some important technology that had come off campus. And the professor that had derived this technology had seen someone uh, not patent technology and then seen that technology abused. So he wanted to put some protection around it. The university said, it's not really our line of business. We're in the business of, as my old boss used to say, educating young minds. So nine alumni, which is where Alumni Research Foundation comes from, threw $100 in and created this foundation back in 1925. That $900 is still on the books as paid in capital. And you ended up with this entity that was a nonprofit to hold the technology that came off of the campus. It was quite visionary at the time. And it's probably one of the very few tech transfer offices that are still held and even held outside the university setting. Most of them are organizations within. And it offers some really nice benefits because what ended up happening was back in that day, they were able to license that first technology off to Kellogg's. And it ultimately generated something like 
$15 million that they were then able to invest. And that grew the portfolio that ended up being the, you know, two to $3 billion portfolio that I was managing all these 90 years later. And if you were inside a university, you don't get the ability to build that asset base. And building that asset base allowed us to give you gifts back to the university. So every year there's a grant that WARF gives back to Madison to support research. And it also allowed us within our portfolio to build this aspect of helping startup companies because that's a way to commercialize technology that comes off campus. So you ended up with an institutional investment office and a tech transfer office merged together in a single foundation. I just want to understand the perspective. That $900, were there subsequent donations or was it just the cash flows from the tech transfer activities that contributed to what became this significant pool of capital? Over time, there were smallish donations, but all the donations to the campus go to the more traditional. There is a UW foundation. It's the UW Foundation and Alumni Association now. This was primarily built off of royalties, and and they were pretty prescient back in the day because they didn't pay all the money back because they knew that they needed to defend the patents. They also weren't sure the foundation, the university had been in business for 70 years or something at that point, and they hadn't ever yet had a big invention like this. So they didn't know how long it might take for the next one. So the trustees originally decided to establish an endowment to protect the intellectual property and be able to do the types of programs. Also back then, they actually managed this patent. You could still find bottles that have, this was a vitamin D, was about, people don't know what this typically means these days because you never hear of rickets, but back in that time period, rickets was a big deal and it was a vitamin D deficiency. So this patent and what it was about was the irradiation of food to put vitamin D into it. And when they did that, that essentially eradicated rickets, which is, That was always part of the super fun part of working at Wharf was you were involved in these really interesting technologies, whether it got licensed to someone like a Kellogg Foods or went through a startup that could truly impact lives. And you could see that happening. And it it was just fun to be a teeny tiny part of that. And so did that one patent drive a significant percentage of the capital that's there today? I don't know if we kept great enough records back in the day. The goal was always to give money back to the university because that original professor could have just kept that money and that patent for himself. And that's the really unselfish, wonderful part of that story was he was so dedicated to the university that he basically donated it all and kept it for the benefit of the university. Is the university then the sole recipient of grants from the foundation? Basically, yeah. In my tenure there, we added a uh, private institute that also gets some of the funds now. But for the most part, someone used to say we really were an endowment masquerading as a foundation. So then how did you think about the investment strategy of that capital? You have this unique lens of this tech transfer piece, but then there's also a big body capital to put to work. I lived through two incredibly different regimes when I was there. When I first arrived, we ran a pretty traditional portfolio. And then ultimately, we went and embraced the Bridgewater concept of the all-weather and overlay portfolio. But when I got there, the traditional portfolio was still, there was definitely a venture-ish, high-risk-taking aspect to the group because we had a portfolio that was 80% equities and 20% fixed income. And if you broke apart the fixed income, 5% of that fixed income was high yield. So we ran a portfolio that was about 85, 15. 
the vol on that thing, I think was like 14% when I got there, which put us on a roller coaster that we were either the best of the best or we were down at the bottom. And the roller coaster, you get a makeup of a trustee group that at some point started to get a little nervous with that amount of volatility. And the current director who had brought me over, he was entering like year 28 of being at Wharf. So there's a lot of longevity there, as, as you can even see by my tenure. And Mark was going to retire. And when they were looking for his replacement, the question was, do we want to continue with this high volatility portfolio? And then we ultimately ended up with a, a man named Tom Weaver, who joined us, who at his former employer had really really embrace the concept of what all weather was about and diversification and using tools at your disposal to create this incredibly diversified portfolio. And then you separated your market decision, your beta portfolio from your alpha decisions. And we embraced this, that portfolio. And that's the one that I ultimately really came to embrace and like. And I continued with that strategy during my tenure. I want to dive into that portfolio. I just have one question on the governance aspect of it, which is when you changed the nature of that portfolio to increase diversification, reduce the volatility, how much of that was a governance decision that the volatility might shake up the board at some point in time compared to what you thought was the right composition independent of that for the long term of the foundation? It's a fascinating tale to watch how we, we move from such a traditional portfolio style boxes, active management to where we went. When Tom came in, the idea was not to change the volatility. What he wanted to do, you could sell all weather two ways. You could either keep the same volatility and get a higher return or keep the same return for lower volatility. What Tom sold to the investment committee and what we were trying to achieve was the same level of volatility, but as long as we're going to take that much volatility, let's get higher return. We ended up delivering significantly less volatility. And the way Tom would originally model it, he hadn't given any diversification benefits when he would calculate what the volatility on the portfolio was going to be. And ultimately, they were so much more, at least in that time period we were doing it, that market volatility was crashing, if you will, but we were even significantly lower than that. And at the time... Did you then say, well, why don't we just dial back up the volatility because we can maintain this at a higher vol level? We talked about it, right? We would say, okay, well, here's what we've achieved because Tom, <laughs> Tom was there. So I'd been at war for four years when Mark decided to retire. Wasn't, I didn't feel that I was ready. Everybody wanted a change. So we said, I'm happy to stay as the associate director. Tom was brought in with the idea, let's do something different. He was only there two years, and then he was recruited away by one of our hedge funds because we'd put a whole hedge fund program in at the time. And so then I, and this is, so Tom arrived in 2005, and now we're in the beginning of 2007, and probably when everything started to feel a little weird and uncomfortable, I was interim through all the way through sort of September, and then they made me the CIO. And once that happened, then we started that question of, okay, this is what Tom put in. We can go back to what we did before, or we can continue to embrace this. People had started to get used to it and we're used to living with it. So then the question was, well, what do we want to do with this? Do we want to ratchet up the volatility? And I'd say over my whole tenure, that question never really was resolved because we had factions that really liked, they said, Worf's money is for the long term. Let's take the volatility. We have enough capital. We can weather this. 
then you'd have more conservative folks. Ted, it also ultimately came down to the fact that you'd say, okay, how are we going to get the volatility up? Are we going to leverage the bonds more? Are we going to start to leverage equities? And you start to put the actual implementation options in front of them. And that's where you really get to test whether people really are that comfortable with how you do it. You know, the idea of more leverage wasn't great, but we'd gotten into fixed income because the the levered bonds are really all government debt. It's all high quality debt, but yields had now dropped. And so the idea of levering government yields or, or tips more made people nervous. And then you're going, okay, well, our choice is equities. Do you want me to either go into something that's a more risky equity, like an emerging market or a frontier market? And we added stuff. The valuation seemed high, so no one wanted to do that. So you're left with, uh, and this is where like committee decisions come down to, let's just stay where we are. We're pretty happy here. All weather is a concept. What was your particular implementation of that concept? I'll start with how I structured the team was we had a provider of the derivatives exposure up in uh, the Minneapolis area and we controlled asset allocation and we came up with what the asset allocation was. And when we used derivatives, that group would implement that piece of it and we would monitor it. And then I took the team and we said, what can we do here? We can focus on the alpha generation, the part where you're adding extra value, because if there isn't a whole lot of value to be added by just the market exposure, let's make sure we have people that are good at helping us set the asset allocation. And our approach was is a little bit trite to say, but it really was set it and let it. And so the idea is it's all about diversification. So we were trying to do that all weather where we wanted the equal boxes. And there's a lot of art even to that. So when folks would say you're just 25, 25, 25, we had a higher weighting to equities than, than the fixed income piece, but we had a lot more balance than most people had. And given you that time frame, we rode this through the 2008 crisis and it was pretty painful. And because now you had correlations at the depth of that kind of going to one, and now you're holding a levered bond portfolio. But we stuck with it. And when we did that, we came out of it so much faster because eventually the fixed income came back, yields dropped, and our portfolio, and it, and it did exactly what it was supposed to do. And we ended up with this balanced portfolio. We focused where we thought we could add value, which is setting an allocation, but not monkeying around with it. We weren't tactical. We knew how hard it was just to find active managers that could consistently do it. The idea that we were going to be able to pull this off in Madison, Wisconsin, didn't seem terribly realistic. And if I did that, then I was betting on teams and people. And that didn't seem like a great way to set up an investment office because then I'd be dependent on that one person who could tactically allocate. So instead, we said, let's go to set out to find the best active managers we can, build long-term relationships with them. And they're the ones that will essentially introduce the tilts into our portfolio. We tried to build something that made sense for us. We weren't looking at what others were doing. And this maybe goes back to a little bit of what you asked in an earlier question. This is what made sense for us at the time. And we had the governance in place partly because we weren't the traditional foundation. So we didn't get compared. And I think this was really important for how we were able to do it. We weren't compared to peers the same way the UW Foundation was. So our returns in the short term always looked extremely different than everyone else. So when everyone else had equities going in, in their top, we were sort of down in the 75th percentile because we had less equities. But 
we weren't focused on the short term. We were focused on five and 10 years and longer. And that's where we were keeping our attention. So let's break down those two pieces. The first is the, I don't know if you want to call it the beta component or that allocation. What did that roughly look like across the assets? It was about a third, a third, a third. So it was a bit of a third equity exposure. Then it was about a third of the fixed income. And then we had, we did commodities and real estate and the natural resources and the real assets fell into that other third, the inflation protection bucket, depending on how you wanted to do it. That's probably the easiest way I could think of. I think we had about somewhere usually between 40 to 45% in public equities or in private equities. Was there like a core engine that was effectively indexed? Yeah, it absolutely was. What we did was we used futures for large, mid and small cap US equities, as well as we used the futures for the EFI, and then we had emerging markets. And in emerging markets, we sometimes used active management because that was an area where you weren't sure you really wanted. And for sure, when we added frontier markets in, we had that for a while, that was all actively managed. So the decision usually was, did it make sense? Could you efficiently get the exposure you wanted better by the overlay plus the passive approach, if you will? I like to say passive, it's almost that vehicle versus hiring the combined group together, you know, and in the case of Frontier, what you were getting, even if there was a derivative, you're not sure you wanted it. So in that case, in the decision, yes, it's more expensive, but there's more return potential and it's better managed in an active. So we would make those types of decisions, private equity, for sure. You can't separate the alpha from the beta. That's just one package. So you're going to have to do that together. And when we did real estate, we did really just core real estate. We did a little bit of REIT exposure, but for the most part, we hired core managers to do that. So we had a combination of active versus passive, and it really was asset class by asset class that we made that decision. And then did you, within that kind of, let's call it beta pool, even if some of it was a blend, did you just have like an active rebalancing to, you know, let's call it a third, a third, a third? The lovely part about using derivatives is, and this I thought was pretty neat, and we'd been introduced to this by, it was the Clifton Group at the time when we first started working with them, the idea of you hire your manager and then they would look and see how much cash they have and would get you to your exposure. We had a daily look at that portfolio. And so what we did was we set the volatility of the asset class times our weighting, and then we put a band around it. And we would every day get that. And if we exceeded the band, Within some time period, we would instruct Parametric slash Clifton to rebalance. So we kept the beta piece. When I say set it and let it, you're like, we weren't trying to let it tilt and we had bands that it went around, but that was where we wanted that. That was the exposure we said we wanted and we weren't trying to make our gains there. We were trying to make it elsewhere. Then you can guess that there's the added complexity of the alpha portfolio and the beta portfolio aren't growing at the same rate. So there was a mechanism by which we would true up and we would, if the active management piece exceeded 1% of the overall portfolio, we would adjust the asset allocation weight. So it sounded really complex. I'm sure once it was in place, it actually ran really smoothly. It was the process of getting it put in place that took some time. Let's turn over to the alpha side, which is kind of the sexier piece to talk about. So clearly, you don't want to take too much market risk, or you're going to be incorporating that into the beta piece. So how'd you go about thinking about where you wanted to spend your time trying to add value? We did a few. It took us a while to get the teams right. So when we started, really, there were just two of us. And that was crazy. And we hired an analyst pretty quickly. 
And we did a few variations of how we structured the team. Ultimately, we ended up with someone handling the private assets. And that was because they also handled the co-invest piece we did on the venture capital, the stuff that came off campus. So that by itself was a full-time job along with the, the venture and private equity portfolio. And we hired a hedge fund person. When we started it, we always knew that the market piece was the market piece. So therefore, we were going to seek very hard to make sure we weren't paying for beta in the alpha piece. So all of the managers had always been put in. And I think that was a mistake, at least it seemed like in the industry that some people had made, that they had put market exposure in their hedge fund portfolio. So for us, we didn't have long, short managers in there at all because there's a lot of beta in there. And to the extent that we had, we would have tried to capture what that number was and then taken it out of. So we had kept traditional managers in the portfolio when we first made the transition. So what we would do is we had a small cap manager, for instance, and we had a big allocation to them and we liked them. And that was actually bigger than what we wanted for small cap. So we would short out the extra exposure. So that was how we managed the alpha The alpha piece was Hedge funds had to have no market exposure. And to the extent that we were still in traditional managers, we hedged out their beta exposure to match what we were targeting. And how did you take the universe of, say, hedge funds and decide where you wanted to play within those confines of market exposure? We ended up with portfolio when I left that maybe had somewhere between 12 to 16 managers. And they're not, I don't think, an overabundance of strategies. There was a when, when time ran the portfolio, I think we had every quant manager of note that you could get. Not surprisingly, we found in 2007 that they all correlated together. So we got rid of some of that. There was a nice blend of, of quantitative as well as somewhat niche-focused strategies. And a lot of people would take their very focused strategy, and we would be able to get them to remove the market beta from it for us and just give us that active exposure. So we got a lot more sophisticated over time in working with managers than when we started. What were your sort of biases within the construct of sort of the type of what type of managers you liked? I like to have a blend. It was my preference to have some long-term, well-established. I've always enjoyed working with them. Relationship, as you can guess, with Bridgewater. That was one of the very first products we put in there. And we kept that pure alpha and the all-weather. We eventually lost the training wheels and we, we stopped using pieces of that. So I liked having big, high-quality managers. We had AQR in there for the longest time. But then you, we liked to marry small, nichier strategies where you could take maybe person risk, if you will, and you would size it appropriately. So where it's a star hedge fund performer, you're not going to put a big proportion of that portfolio because there's a big risk in that particular manager. But you're probably not as worried about Bridgewater imploding on you. So you can move a little bit more capital there. But then you get the difference between are they too big and can they still generate the return Versus the smaller manager, what you're hoping for is that they can generate the return. So we went international. The last manager that I added in before I left was based in Hong Kong. So you were looking for new markets that had the ability to capitalize on something that still existed that hadn't been over invested. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 
36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm curious how you think about or thought about sizing in the sense that if your beta portfolio covers the risk of the pool of capital, that alpha portfolio in theory just needs to make a cost of capital. Like it could be leverage on top of the beta portfolio. So how did you think about how big to get it and what your required rate of return was on that alpha portfolio? Because we tried to balance it from, it became a liquidity question as much as anything. So clearly we had established some pretty stringent, just pure cash we held aside and how much cash we held aside to support the derivatives in the margin position. And we'd learned in 2008 pretty clearly how much you needed to have. Then there was the question of, did we think there was value in the private markets? And over time, we had really created a big venture bent that was starting to align with with the tech transfer activities and the startup activities. It ended up being kind of a fallout between once you had your private assets, once you had your capital set aside, that's what was left. And then it became a, do we think that there are opportunities? So for us, what we would tell people is it's sort of up to whatever that percent level was, it's zero to however comfortable you are. And if there aren't great opportunities, after 2008, for the longest time, we sat with like a lot of cash. We didn't deploy it. We had a small team at that time. So we were rebuilding the team and we just didn't have the ability. There probably was all the opportunity, but we just didn't have the ability. So at that point in time, we saw a lot more cash. And what was nice about separating that way is you were always getting the market exposure, the private assets. There wasn't anything you could do about it. And you could either try to increase or decrease how much active. When I left, we were in the process of hedge funds, as you know, really were struggling. We were at the process of ratcheting down that exposure and instead building the cash back up because we just didn't see if there was the opportunity for the risk we were taking and the fees we were paying. And just to calibrate it, what's the most as a percentage of the foundation that was invested in that alpha portfolio? I want to say at one point we had 1.4 billion invested in it. The portfolio, so the rough numbers, we're shy of $3 billion in total. And we had some other assets that had come in from the, the private foundation that we oversaw their assets. And we had about $6 billion of notional exposure if you included the derivatives and the leverage that was used in the portfolio and the hedge fund portfolio. So we ran about two times levered portfolio, of which about half of that was the alpha portfolio, the overlay over the top. I think at best, we were able to get to about 60% of the beta portfolio covered in alpha in hedge funds, if that makes sense. It's such a different construct than, a, as you said, a typical endowment and foundation. Just to kind of calibrate over the 
almost 20 years you were in the seat, or maybe it's more relevant talking about the last 10. What did the returns look like from a return and risk standpoint compared to maybe a median or even a top quartile in an endowment or foundation? Over the period of time, you know, it varied. In that first period of time when we had it, right, in 2005, equities were taking off, so we were underperforming. So then there was a question. You know, you go through the the financial crisis and coming out of that, when you came out of that on the long-term basis, at one point, we were top one percentile over the 10-year period. Like, that's how well it had propelled us. And we had some great picks. For those folks who've been around long enough, one of the earliest hedge funds we put in was the Pulse and Credit Opportunity Fund. So there was substantial tailwind from that particular hedge fund in 2007. Bridgewater had some fantastic seniors. So the hedge fund portfolio doing the overlay when the beta portfolio was weak offered a ton of value in that window. Now you start to move forward and the markets take off and now we have a tailwind of we're underweight equities and all you really had to do was own passive exposure. You owned the market and you had great returns. When I left, we were still a top quartile, even though we had perpetually been underweight equities relative to everyone else. And I think that was in large part built upon the fact that we had a portfolio. The bonds had done well. They actually were the best performing, the levered bonds were the best performing asset class we had, which I think surprises some people. And we built a really good alpha engine and it delivered, it was targeting 200 basis points of added return over the market exposure. That's what we targeted. And it pretty much had been doing that over the long period. So that little margin is usually all you need to get you up to that top quartile. And I think that's how we did it. And we did it with, I'd have to say comparable risk because market volatility had dropped so low in that world. But it was really hard for anyone to beat a 60-40 portfolio, as everybody knows. So I felt really proud that with what we were doing, we kept up and and, and we did really well. And I think that as you keep going, because it doesn't stop at a point in time, that will continue to serve organizations really well. Yeah. So I really want to pivot to what you're doing and your departure from the rationale, but I have one hypothetical question to ask you before we do that, which is if you're still sitting in the seat at Wharf, bonds for that entire period of time were a tailwind. As you mentioned, the hedge funds don't look as good as they did. How would you put the money to work in the same way if the risk parity concept is predicated on bond performance and the alpha concept is predicated on a group of investment strategies that have been competed away in some sense. As to anyone looking at what would you do, what I found interesting because I was no longer there when COVID started was given my skill set and what I'm good at, I wasn't a market timer. I wasn't a person who loved to spend a ton of time in the markets. I had once asked a good friend who was a marketer and said, you know, I'm not the kind of person who just loves to jump on and see what the S&P 500 is doing every day. I said, am I in the wrong career? Because uh, does that make me a bad CIO? And and he said, I actually think that makes you a better CIO because you're really focused on building a team and putting together the right process and the long term. And you understand, you know, you can hire that expertise. So everyone would always say, you know, yields are going up, yields are going up. And I had a different view of it. And I just said, maybe that they could go down. I mean, there's zero in Germany right now, and they've been there in Japan. So I don't know that they're going up. Yes, they could, but I also could see where they would go down. So 
what I have to do is firmly believe in what I'm doing and then have the courage to stick with it. But that would take a lot of courage. And then what you end up finding out, actually, we all saw what happened when COVID hit, yields did go down. And if you were holding them, that helped. It provided that asset that did well, but obviously whipsawing is really bad for an all-weather portfolio. But you have to then ultimately marry that to the governance you have. So as you go over the course of the 15 years we ran that, your board changes, risk appetites change, the program changes. And so then you have to be aware of a changing universe and where the organization wants to go. So I don't know that at that point, we still wanted to have that same structure and if it made sense anymore. And, and I obviously since left and I'm not sure where they've taken it, but I do think it's always worth questioning if it's still the right strategy to fit everything because strategy doesn't exist outside of and away from the governance structure that you're in. All right, Carrie. So you mentioned that you did leave. Why don't you walk me through after, what was it, 18 years at Wharf, you decided to leave and what you're doing now? What I decided to do now was go back to specializing. I have always been impressed and fascinated by people that just become experts in their area. And at the time, some folks have said, why wouldn't you become a CIO someplace else? And so the challenge of just becoming a CIO at a bigger place would be a challenge, don't get me wrong, but that wasn't the kind of challenge that I was looking for. I had always managed our venture capital portfolio at some level. And the hedge funds were interesting, but my passion and my love has always, it turns out, been in the private markets, whether it was the real estate pieces or the venture and the buyouts. And what we did at Wharf, we also I co-managed our direct investment program. So we would invest directly into some of the startups. So that had always been part of where I kept my fingers. We'd done a lot of efforts to enhance the local ecosystem, starting a venture capital fund here in Madison in partnership with the state pension fund, had supported some of the accelerators. So I had this desire and interest to, as we started out with Wisconsin through and through, to take what we knew, to take our institutional investment expertise, what we knew about venture, and just really focus on that and try to really get venture capital to this state to fund the innovation. So simply said, maybe take my Wharf playbook when it came to that aspect of my job and bring it to the whole state. And there had been models where it happened in Michigan and Ohio, and we felt we were ideally suited to do that. And I really wanted to focus in on a single asset class again. And this was the one that that I had the most passion for. So when you go to start your own company, how did you distill all the lessons you learned from running Wharf into something? It's now your own without a governance structure. What did you sort of put in place as the values that you wanted to impart in the business? We're still building it. So I think we're still building the values. And it starts with who I decided to choose as my partner. So I wanted to find people who shared the same values. And one of the partners was formerly with me at my Wharf team and, and joined me. And another one was an operational person who had run one of the startup companies. And that's how I met her. One of our values is impacting a place or having having an impact that's more than just for us. It's that we're going to do good here. It's honesty. It's directness. It's being us. It's I think what NBNG is, is, is who we all are, I guess. We just stuck with what we know. 
Yeah, you just ripped off the name of the company quickly, NVNG. Why don't you say what that stands for? It didn't rip it off early. When I started, we would stumble over it. And we've gotten mixed reviews on the name. But the name at the time for us really spoke to us because we did the everybody struggles with it, whether it's the creek in your backyard or it's, it's some Greek god. And for us, we were focusing on the venture capital asset class. All of us were trying to decide what we wanted to do next with our lives as we moved on to a next stage. And I was walking my puppy dog one day and the phrase nothing ventured, nothing gained came up. And so I think it was as much about me trying to uh, move myself forward to do I really want to not find that next job inside a corporation where I have a role and, and it's well understood to the uncertainty of a startup because I'd known what that looked like. And I've always just been a little bit in part of what we believe is, if you don't try it, it's never going to happen. Like, just let's do this. I proposed the idea to my partners. We didn't want to call it Nothing Ventured, Nothing Gained. So we switched it to the acronym. After a while, it starts to flow off your tongue a lot easier and you can say NVNG. And so we've embraced it. It For us, we're targeting and think that venture capital asset class is so powerful and that there are a lot of other types of investors who aren't engaged in venture that should be. So the nothing ventured, nothing gained, we think applies there as well, that it really just suited. It wasn't wasn't meant to be trite. It was really meant to reflect. We think there's power in the venture asset class. We think others could benefit by having exposure to it, and we'd like to provide efficient exposure to it. And we have this expertise in our ecosystem, in the asset class that we would like to build upon. You talked initially about bringing venture and the benefits of venture into Wisconsin. So I'm curious what the fund will be. So are you looking at investments in Wisconsin or is there some way that you're working with the full ecosystem of venture with that as a benefit? What we recognized and thought was important was that what you're doing is you're focusing on getting professional investment capital to the state's entrepreneurs, to the best ideas. And that it isn't so much about worrying about whether we have a well-developed local ecosystem, though that is definitely part of it. It's looking out at the industry and seeing that there's a lot of interest in Midwest technology. And there's a lot more venture groups targeting it, be they right here in the Midwest, in our state, or even coastal firms that have developed Midwest offices or some that later stage will invest with a trusted local partner. So for us, someone recently had said venture is a social network. It's about networks and connections. And when you frame it up that way, what we were lacking in our state was sufficient connections, density, if you will. So what we can represent is we can support the local venture groups that will clearly have an interest in supporting the local entrepreneurs, but we can also represent a point of contact for other groups that may want to enter this ecosystem and see what's available here because the University of Wisconsin-Madison and and the state universities, there's a billion dollar of research spending every year. And there's just a fraction of venture capital that's dedicated to this. So the Midwest writ large really doesn't have as much venture focused on it as a coast does. And you end up with these large land grant universities that, that, you know, were started in agrarian times. So they're all away from money centers. And so what you end up having is that they just haven't had that amount of focus. It's been easier. It's easier to invest where the money is right next to the university. And that does not happen in the Midwest. So that's 
kind of a problem I'd say we're solving for here in the Midwest broadly. There are groups similar to what we're doing that operate. And there's a lot of value to be harvested because there's a lot of really interesting technologies. I I find it fascinating that one of the companies I helped support when I was at Wharf was creating a universal vaccine for the flu. And when COVID came, they were already in phase two trials. So it's a different approach to attacking how you create a vaccine. They were able to take their technology and use a COVID virus and try to create. And they're one of the companies that's, that's trying to develop a vaccine that will come at it in an entirely different way than where you're growing virus and chicken eggs. That's not how they approached it. And to be able to see that people now have interest in those kinds of deeper technologies, things that require more money, more time, that's, I think, what you see a lot of. And you have this big corporate presence that exists here, the the asset-based manufacturers that are all now trying to figure out how do they navigate in a digital world and how do they get the innovation and the research that happens inside their companies out. It's, to me, a fascinating opportunity as venture moves to sort of be part of watching it grow bigger here in the Midwest, which I think is imminently possible to do. In your time at Wharf, as you described, you really invested across that ecosystem. So you've invested in venture funds, you've done co-invests, and then you've been involved with this tech transfer and these companies. How did you think about what product to offer with NVNG? We tried to figure out what we were good at, which is earlier I mentioned, I tried to build an investment office where we could add value in what we would be good at. And what I knew was that I had 20 plus years of working in hiring and interviewing and meeting and venture capital managers. I had also had 18 plus years of working in the local startup ecosystem by helping make introductions to venture capital managers. And I had to say, because a question that we got frequently was, well, why not just start a venture fund? And I had to say, is that's not my skill set. That's not where I can add the most value. I can add the most value by bringing being of Wisconsin. Plus, if I had a, a worry or a chip, if you will, on my shoulder at some point, it was that I was just Wisconsin and that people would think I didn't, you know, I hadn't lived outside of it. And was I really, you're in a CIO job, you travel the world, you, you're everywhere, you're across asset classes. So now it's like, well, I am of Wisconsin, but I have definitely, I think, proven that I can navigate anywhere. I had hardly been out of the state before I was in college. So my first trip to New York was when I went to SWIB and that that just blew people away because I was 23, 24 years old before I ever made a first trip to New York because it's just, it's not that unusual if you grew up where I grew up. But since then, you know, I couldn't tell you how many times I've been there. And we had the ability to go and say, well, here's what we've done. And we know this world and we have a passion for it and we're interested in it. And let's use what we've been given to the best advantage for this product. That's how I guess we approached it. How have you thought about the capital base for the fund? The way we looked at the capital base there, I mentioned earlier, there was an accelerator group that we had helped. We did an early sponsorship with and we became really good partners because what they were trying to do was get more technology off campus. Somewhat, you start to have to change culture. And as part of what their product offering was, they had had a program where they brought corporate innovation groups together and we would get invited to go to those dinners and those meetings. And I would find myself sitting next to a, a corporate innovation officer from someone from one of Wisconsin's big you know, Fortune 500 companies. And you'd start conversations around what they were doing and try to understand it. And then this whole new world gets opened up and you realize 
back in the day, a lot of times someone would have like a GE or somebody in their buyout fund and say, this is great because now we can have access. But it didn't really work that well because the investment was located in the pension, which really didn't know how to get to the rest of the organization. And so it sounded good, but I don't know how in practice well it really ever worked out. Well, now you had innovation teams, and this was real, and this was a thing, and this was my first introduction to it. I know on the coast, probably it existed decade earlier, but it had now gotten here. And this group, it became apparent, was largely trying to figure it out. So while they could create their own corporate venture capital fund, that does require a certain amount of scale. You could also say, well, maybe you just want to dip your toe in the water and you want to just see what professional VC is about. And a fund-to-fund structure, if you provided transparency, because this group actually wants it, a financial investor may not want the transparency, but this group does, you've solved a few problems and you've opened up their ability to get what they want without the difficulty of how do you build an investment office and how do you vet 2,000 funds. And so we thought that this potentially could marry up nicely for people who maybe wanted a niche focus in a fund. You know, it could be a financial investor. If you were a university with a small endowment and a tech transfer office, you could recreate synthetically what Wharf had. If you're a corporation and you're trying to figure out how do I get in this into venture capital, or I have my own CVC, but I also would like to see a broader subset across diverse industries, uh, we see the possibilities as really fascinating and super exciting to consider what we could do with it. Carrie, this is super interesting. How can people follow what you're doing? Well, we have a website and LinkedIn. So it's nvngia.com is the website and NVNG is out there on LinkedIn. And we have a program and we put materials out there. And we host webinars. We're, we're, we're young. We were formed in November. So we're coming up on our one-year anniversary. Great. Well, I'm really excited to see how this plays out. But before I can let you go, of course, we're going to ask you a couple of closing questions. So let's start with what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? (laughs) This is a tough one now since I'm doing a startup. There really are none outside of it. The best I could come up with, I still like to run. It's how I get my brain cleared. I don't do it competitively. I just like to go and do it. And I also like to just go have a drink or go eat dinner with a friend and make sure I maintain those. So those are really truly the two hobbies I can fit into my life right now. I have four sons, so two of them are still at home. And as we talked about earlier with the the one who had COVID, there's one that's just at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So three in total are pretty near me. So that still keeps me busy and they all love sports. So that's the family part, but those are the two things I can get in. What's your most important daily habit? I don't know that I have one. I was thinking other than brushing my teeth, I don't do anything on a regular basis anymore. Given the startup, there's no one daily thing I do other than brush my teeth. And and I do like to start the day with a cup of coffee. What's your biggest pet peeve? The biggest pet peeve, I just told you I have four sons, is that they don't seem to know how to flush a toilet. So that, that would be my biggest pet peeve that I haven't figured out how to solve that one. I'm not sure how this question will come out now, but what teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I do have one teaching that honestly has always very much stayed with me. And this one came from my father. And I strive daily still to embrace this. And he he managed to get this. I don't know how, because he ultimately passed away from cancer, but he did. But it was 
<laughs> make me get warm. Now, control what you can and don't worry about the rest. That's all you can do. All right, Karen, I'm going to ask you one more before we add a few on for our premium members. And that is what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? God, the one that easily jumped out to me was patience. I wish I had been more patient over time. Carrie, thanks so much for taking the time. This is great. You're welcome. This was great fun. Thank you, Ted. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 